0: You are listening to Killer, and this is Case Number 13, The Happy Face Killer, Part 1. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin.
1: A little girl growing up happy, her father's pride and joy. Let's see your new boots. These home videos showing a childhood that from the outside seemed perfectly normal until as a teen she discovered her father's terrible secret.
2: It was a smiley face that he would uh, put on the stalls of bathrooms at truck stops, and he would also send it to reporters, to the Oregonian. Um, he would just put it wherever, he would leave it at his mark, wherever he could to taunt the police. This recurring nightmare that I'm I'm in a body bag and my dad's sipping me up, but I'm alive. And I wake up. And I remember who my dad is, and I remember the victims. I think about the terror they must have felt the moment that they knew that they weren't going to live anymore. I think about what that must have been like to know you're going to die and that this is your last moment.
1: Melissa's the oldest of three children and always looked forward to when her dad, a long-haul truck driver, would return from a trip.
2: First thing I do is uh, when he got out of the car, I'd run up to him and go for his pockets for the change that he had left over from his day. I gotta keep the change and I would save it up to buy a little gum and things like that. Is she looking through rose-colored glasses or were there really
1: good times? There really were good times. Rose Huck is Melissa's mom.
2: At Christmas time, even if we didn't have the money, somehow he'd figured out how to get the money and bring back what the kids really wanted for Christmas.
1: Would you describe him as a good husband?
2: No, he was not a good husband. Why? He was very distant with me. Was he abusive to you? No, he was not. If he was angry, he would walk away. My dad would never spank me or uh, hit me. Describe him physically. I mean, he's a big man. Yeah, he was six foot six and about closer to 300 pounds.
1: Keith Jesperson, a large, handsome man with a dark side, which he mostly managed to keep hidden from his children, except for one traumatic event Melissa witnessed as a 6-year-old that she still remembers vividly.
2: One day when I went down here to go play with my brother and my sister, house, I, I found some little kittens. they were resting right here. When I got out here, my dad was working out by the barn he said, can I see him? I said, no. He grabbed him by the tail and hung them on the clothesline and wailing, screaming their little kitten screams. I ran inside the house to get my mom and wanted it to stop. And then by the time we got back out and got out here, they were, the kittens were laying on the ground over here. So I remember bending down. Just seeing that they were dead.
1: What is it that you think
2: you caught a glimpse of that day? The sociopath, the the part where he felt in control over me and that he enjoyed it. I, I got a sense that there was another side to him. So it's almost
1: like you caught a glimpse of the monster who killed these people. I did, I did catch a glimpse. Rose says that after a decade of marriage, strange women started calling the house, and she began suspecting he was having affairs.
2: And I said, who is this? And she goes, oh, I'm Keith's girlfriend. I said, well, I'm his wife. Click.
1: She had had enough. And after 14 years of marriage, the pair decided to separate. Rose and her three children left the orchards of where the kids spent their youth to drive 200 miles away to Spokane, Washington, to move into the cellar of
2: their grandmother's home. But Melissa, now 10, still loved her dad. She said, your father doesn't want us anymore, and we're separating. And I thought, this is not the case. Dad loves us. Once he sees me again, he'll change his mind.
1: Although the family never reconciled, over the next five years, Melissa's father would
2: visit whenever his trucking jobs took him their way. He would come into town and take us out to eat, go shopping. And then after the shopping, he would take us to the grocery store. He would stay the night and leave the next morning.
1: Melissa says she never saw or heard anything unusual. Except for those awkward conversations that might make any teenager
2: cringe. Wherever there was a female around, he had to say something that was inappropriate. He would start talking about his sexual acts with other women, and I didn't want to hear it. It was disgusting to me. You knew it was wrong. He was proud of his sexual experiences and wanted to share it
1: then, a conversation at a diner that would haunt her for years to come.
2: The last time I saw my dad, he came to Spokane, just a sporadic visit, and we came to a diner like this. And he said, I have something to tell you, but if I tell you, you'll, you'll tell the authorities, you'll tell the police. And, and then my stomach started to get upset.
0: Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6, 1955, to Les and Gladys Jesperson in Chilliwack, British Columbia, the middle child with two brothers and two sisters. His father was a domineering alcoholic, and Jesperson claimed that his paternal grandfather was also violent. Les Jesperson denied being an abusive parent, however, while investigating for his book on Jesperson, author Jack Olson was able to confirm much of the claimed abuse with other family members. In his younger
3: years, Jesperson was given less attention than his siblings and treated differently by the rest of the family. After moving to Seattle, Washington, Jesperson had trouble fitting in and making friends because of his large size. His brothers didn't help him. Instead, they nicknamed him Igor, or Ig, a name that stuck throughout his school years. Because of this, he was a shy child, content to play by himself much of the time. He would often get into trouble for behaving badly, sometimes violently, and would be severely punished by his father. This included beatings, sometimes with a belt in front of others, and in one case he received an electric shock from his father.
0: At a very early age, as young as five, Jesperson would capture and torture animals. He enjoyed watching animals kill each other as well as the feeling he got from taking their lives. This continued as he got older. He would capture birds and stray cats and dogs around the trailer park where he lived with his family, severely beating the animals and then strangling them to death, something he claims his father was proud of him for. In the years following, Jesperson said he also thought about what it would be like to do the same to a human.
3: By the time Jesperson was six, he had gotten his first taste of killing living things by bashing in the heads of gophers. Keith was the middle child of two brothers, Bruce and Brad, and two sisters, Sharon and Jill. His father, Les Jesperson, charged Keith, room and board, $30 a week, while his brothers and sisters paid nothing. By the time he was 20, while living with his parents in the Washington State Trailer Park, Keith got his first taste of killing larger animals when he began dragging stray dogs and cats into a field near the park where he would beat them to death with a shovel, strangle them with his bare hands, or shoot them with his BB gun. He discovered that he enjoyed it. We have telltale signs of, like, serial killer right off the rip at a young age. I mean, this is like the standard textbook stuff where they maim and torture animals right out the gate with this dude.
0: Yeah, and one thing that we haven't, touched on we may have in some previous episodes i just don't recall which ones but this is one of the first ones where we really call out some of the abuse and i guess you would say bullying for his physical stature and size and kind of his demeanor so that that plays into it as well it says it pushed him to be a shy introverted type of person
3: yeah and like you know there's you know there's a lot of crap that goes on with these people they get you know abused and made fun of and bullied and all that stuff and you know um obviously this is like the extreme end of the spectrum you know you have this and suicide those two things when it's really bad for somebody but you know you also have like the abuse of animals and all of that stuff so i mean clearly something was going on in his childhood where his family just were very odd towards him in the first place because you know he says he was treated differently and you know he had you know an alcoholic father and, you know, the, just, he said he grew up in violence and, you know, he had to pay rent when his siblings lived for free and just weird, strange things. Like, you know, you've seen it before where there is like that one kid in the family who for some reason is just treated differently. And, you know, so it's, it's not something that's like never done, but it is a little bit strange because I would like to think that for the most part, most people, they try to treat all of their kids somewhat equally. I mean, everybody gets along with their children a little bit differently. Everyone's a unique individual and personalities can clash or they can get along really well. So you might have some of that going on, but in general, you still don't like, you know, like do things like charge one kid rent and not the other. <laughs> that would just be silly.
0: Yeah. And you don't generally administer electric shocks to your kids either. So that's kind of <laughs> effed up. Yeah. I, I kind of
3: glossed over that part. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. But the thing that, that stood out to me here and to me, that's kind of conflicting in my head is, you know, killing animals, torturing them, killing them, strangling them and getting satisfaction out of that. What is that switch that's within people? Because there, there's people every day that, you know, we're we live in Ohio. We're in the prime time for deer hunting. You got all these maniacs out there in their orange vests and jackets shooting at deer running in the field. I was I've been there, I've done that, but I never got satisfaction out of killing anything. I was I was very always very appreciative if if I was to be lucky enough to harvest an animal that I knew I was getting a fresh source of food to put in my freezer, but for people like this, they just enjoy killing just to kill. And I've always kind of been mystified by what what separates somebody like myself that's that's done this to animals out of respect for the animal and you know putting some food in the freezer versus these people that just do it to just be you know a complete maniac in my opinion.
3: Yeah, you know, I've never I've never hunted ever. Um the I guess I'll tell a story here. <laughs> it's a story I'm not super proud of, but um when I was a kid, I was hanging out with some friends and uh somehow The idea came, let's go to the pet store and buy a bunch of mice and we'll put them in this box and then we'll light off a bunch of fireworks in the box. We were probably 13 maybe. And it never sat right with me. The other two I was with were way more into it, you know, and it was kind of one of those like group peer pressure things where at first we decided like, oh, that'll be funny that's a good idea. And then as you, like, start seeing it getting ready to unfold, like, the pit of your stomach just kind of dropped, and, like, I felt horrible. And so then, I, like, it ha- I don't even actually remember, like, what happened after that. I know we lit the fireworks off, but it was one of those things that, like, I instantly just felt gross and, like, not... I. I was just, it was weird, really weird. Like I felt like, I felt like I was watching myself like out of body almost. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause it's not me. That's not my personality. And so it was like one of those things where you just get caught up in a weird situation that you're like not really in control of, even though you really are, you just don't feel like it at the time. And so that happened. And I just like felt so disgusted and just weird. And, uh, you know, I've never done anything like that again. And I've never hunted. Um, I don't kill animals. I mean, it's just not something that I enjoy it's it's weird to me. Um, I mean, if I had to hunt to survive, I would do it, no questions asked. Uh, but because I don't have to, I don't. You know, um, so it's not to say like hunting is bad or wrong. It's just not something I'm into doing. Just because like this is not my thing. Like killing stuff, just not fun to me. Um, I, I awkwardly enough, um, I had a mouse in in my shed in my new house when I moved in, and I trapped it. Like I didn't even kill it. I just trapped it and then I released it somewhere else. Like I drove it away from my house and then let it go out in a field somewhere, you know, cause I didn't want to kill it. So, I mean, you have both, I mean, the opposite ends of the spectrum there in those two stories. And so to me, like getting to that mindset where like killing an animal or killing something for fun, like that just, I did, I don't get it at all. Like it made me feel horrible. Like, and I mean, obviously we were doing it in a really ridiculous way, but it's still, it was just, it was gross to me. I,
0: I don't know. Well, thankfully, that's what sets you apart from guys like this, the story we're telling. I mean, you have that, that compass that Any time I would hunt and, and kill an animal, you have an adrenaline rush. You Obviously, it's like that thrill for the one second, like everything's happening in like slow motion. Adrenaline catches up to you. But then I always felt bad too, because you see something take its last breath, you know, that you ended its life. It is, it, it still never set right with me you know, on occasion. I, I enjoyed the thrill of the hunt and I was always, you know, super satisfied that I could, could bring that back. And, you know, I always processed it myself, cut it up myself and, and packed it and froze it, did what, what I had to do to preserve it. But yeah, it's just what sets, I think, a normal person apart from a psychopath, in my opinion, if you cannot feel that empathy for the animal at all, even though you still took its life, then then you're pretty fucked up, in my opinion. It's just a a bad situation. And and like like I've said before, I worked on a farm, and no one ever liked having to euthanize an animal because it was sick or it was injured. But it was one of those situations what where, where you feel a hell of a lot worse leaving it lay there to suffer and die miserably, where you know you know the end is the end for that animal. So you have to accept that fact and have that register in your head that you know you're doing the right thing by, you know, relieving of its pain and suffering. Oh yeah. That's that's something I did time and time again. So,
3: yeah. I mean, we, uh, we had a dog who we had to put down. I mean, you're going to put down your dog. Like of course, farm animals get put down too. You know, like you're not going to let an animal suffer any longer than it has to. And we had a dog and she had cancer and she was, um, she was just becoming miserable she lived for like two or three years with cancer like in in a state that was like reduced from her norm but she was still functional and then it became that time where it was time to put her down so like we knew for years like she's gonna be put down and the moment we had to do it i was fine until now it was my wife's dog i've been with my wife since high school so i was with her when she got the dog and so like you know I was really close with the dog too. And obviously we got married and moved in together. But I mean, it was my wife's dog. That was her. That dog owned her. Like it was her pet, you know, that kind of thing. So she didn't want to see it. So I had to take it to the vet to be put down. And, you know, I was fine because I knew it was coming. But the moment I had to carry that animal out the door, I started bawling like a little girl. I mean, the whole way to the vet and even at the vet, like I couldn't talk to people. I was just like so sad, making me sad thinking about it right now. And, you know, it was something I knew was coming. And like that, that trigger just doesn't exist in people like Jesperson. Like it just doesn't, there's no empathy. Like you have like this void in your, in your mind, like it just doesn't exist. And if it, I I don't know if it's like something you're born with or predisposed to potentially like developing that because of, you know, like, like he, like maybe because of the abuse that like really triggered him to then you know, lose that empathy because he was abused and that he witnessed violence and was picked on. And like, so finally there was like a void that just filled him. And it was like, okay, I'm cold now. I'm cold to the world. I don't care. This doesn't matter to me. I'm going to kill animals. I don't care. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is in you, but it seems like, you know, certain people have it and certain people don't. And I don't, I don't know if it's like, you know, the environment that shapes you to be that way, or if you're born that way, I, I think that's kind of the million dollar question.
0: Yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a product of the environment and, you know, I think there's a little bit of loose wiring when you're born too. There has to be something at the, at the very least at the mental level that you have genetically been passed down. I mean, we talk IQ tests, we talk all these different things, but your genetic makeup, I firmly believe it has something to do with it. And then- the environment and abuse at home and the unfair treatment pushing you to be introverted. I think that that tips you over. I think that makes you be that cold person. And then you get satisfaction out of doing crap like this because you feel like you're the dominant person or thing in that situation. So I'm not a psychologist. I won't claim to be, but it's just my observation, right?
3: Well, if you were a psychologist, I would come see you every day. You know, I want my psychologist wearing a shirt that says meet Dick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got to get the full effect. Meet Dick. He is a Michigan fan. And the the back says, don't be a dick. So So good. (laughs) Okay. We'll continue on here. I was Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesperson bragged. It was like I was playing war. When I looked at those dogs, they would squat and pee. They'd be so scared that they'd tremble by his own emission. Jesperson enjoyed the fear he instilled in these animals and took great pleasure in watching and feeling the life literally drain out of the animals until they succumb to their death. You come to the point where killing something is nothing, Jesperson said. It's the same feeling, whether he was strangling a human being or an animal. You've already felt the pressure on the throat of them trying to grab air. You're actually squeezing the life out of these animals and there isn't much difference. They're going to fight for their lives just as much as a human being will.
3: Nowadays, it's no secret that those who have shown a propensity toward animal violence and abuse during their younger years sometimes move on to be more violent and perform more violent crimes later in life that are directed at human beings. It's in the crime journals of all major law enforcement agencies. Jesperson once wrote from his prison cell at Oregon State Penitentiary, where he eventually became a permanent resident. Abusive behavior towards animals is one of the symptoms on the road to being a murderer.
0: He wrote that it was in his early childhood that his aggression towards animals began and explained that his father once witnessed him throw a cat against a pavement and finish it off by strangling it to death. Jesperson wrote that his father had appeared proud of how he had dealt with the cat and bragged to others about how Keith had gotten rid of the stray cats and dogs in the mobile home park where they lived.
3: All this did is spawn in in me the urge to kill again, Jesperson said. I began to think of what it would be like to kill a human being. The thought stayed with me for years until one night it happened we should stop the cruelty to anything before it develops into a bigger problem like me. Yeah, that's uh basically reiterating what we've already said, you know, um and and coming out of his own mouth. <laughs> like, hey, yeah. <laughs> I know that this is a a bad thing here. Um <laughs> being violent towards animals does lead to to killing people.
0: Yeah, and he he pretty much just says right there it's it's no different if I strangle a cat or a dog and kill them. He he equates that to being no different than killing a human, which is to me You've reached an epic level of batshit crazy when you come to that feeling or that mindset.
3: Yeah, talk about not giving enough. That dude does not give an F. <laughs> I mean, and, and we've listened to, you know, a lot of videos and stuff with him in it and him talking, and he talks so matter-of-factly about this stuff. Like, it just doesn't even matter. It just rolls right off of his back.
0: Like, who cares? Whatever. <laughs> it's like weird. And that falls right into the same vein as um, Lawrence Bittaker. When, when we listened to that audio of him at his trial, he talked about it so matter-of-factly. Why did you touch her with the cold pliers? Well, to shock her body, to see if she was still alive. No emotion whatsoever. <laughs> it's like,
3: yeah, I did it. It's just like, hey, dude, why'd you go to McDonald's and eat that hamburger yesterday? Uh, I was hungry. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I just strangled
0: her. Who cares? <laughs> it's like, what? Oh, man. It's good that we recognize how crazy that is because that shows that we have a little bit of sanity. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, these guys are just completely insane no kidding i mean it is it's, it's one of those things that's what's that's why true
3: crime in general is so fascinating to me especially like the murder aspect of true crime i mean there are there's like true crime stuff where it's more like heists and bank robberies and stuff but like the the like the killer side of it like the stuff that we de- delve into regularly each week like that's what's so fascinating to me is because it's so far beyond my personality to really comprehend how you could get there like i could kind of understand it by just like thinking about it analytically but when i sit down like, if you really are honest with yourself, you don't understand it as much as you want to. You just don't. You don't
0: understand it at all. Shows you just how off the rails some people are. And it's scary to think that these people walk around every day. Just the ones that don't get caught. We Excuse me. We never hear about, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I saw something floating around on Instagram. I don't know how true it was or who it was for. Honestly, I, I didn't read it that closely. But there was some somebody, and I'm sure someone who's listening can yell at me on instagram and tell me who it is there's a an image floating around of a of a killer who he would walk into your house but he wouldn't go in your house if it was locked and that was like his sign like if the door's locked i'm not meant to be here but if your door's unlocked i was invited and then he went in and kill people (laughs) it was like so weird like you're already weird enough for murdering people for like your leisure but um to just like have a rule like well, I I can kill people, but only if their door's unlocked.
0: <laughs> That's so strange. I think if that is true, we just call that guy the easy way out killer. <laughs> he didn't work for it. He just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The path of least resistance killer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we'll continue on here. That desire manifested in two attempted murders. The first happened when Jesperson was around 10 years old. He was friends with a boy named Martin. And the two would often get into trouble together jesperson claimed he was punished many times for things martin had done and blamed on jesperson this led jesperson to attack martin violently beating him until his father pulled him away he later claimed his intention was to kill the boy approximately a year later jesperson was swimming in a lake when another boy held him under the water until he blacked out sometime later at a public pool jesperson attempted to drown the boy holding his head underwater until the lifeguard pulled him away
3: Jesperson claims that he lost his virginity in high school at the age of 14 during an act of rape. He graduated high school in 1973, but did not attend college because his father did not believe he could do it. Although he was not successful with girls in high school, having never even attended a school dance or his prom, he did enter into a relationship after high school in 1975 when Jesperson was 20. He married Rose Huck, and the couple had three children, two daughters, and one son. Jesperson worked as a truck driver to support the family.
0: At the age of Thirty-five, standing six foot six and weighing approximately two hundred forty pounds, Jesperson began working towards the goal of becoming a, a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. But an injury suffered while training ended his dream. It was then that he sought to work again as an interstate truck driver after relocating to Cheney, Washington.
3: Several years later, Huck began to suspect Jesperson was having affairs. Tension in the marriage increased, and after fourteen years, Huck decided she'd had enough. While Jesperson, a truck driver, was on the road, she packed up. And her chil- her and her children's belongings, and drove 200 miles away to live with her parents in Spokane, Washington. The oldest child, Melissa, was 10 years old. Jesperson continued to spend time with his children when he was in town. The couple divorced in 1990. This dude was six foot six, 240. He should have been a professional wrestler.
0: Yeah, that or a football player, something.
3: <laughs> I mean, holy cow! I mean, what a giant human. Um, I've seen some photos of him with some other people next to him, and man, he is massive.
0: Yeah, he is a big guy, and knowing a little bit about his past and his childhood, I I kind of am surprised that he didn't lash out when his wife just packed up and moved 200 miles away when he was out on the road.
3: Yeah. That was, that struck me as odd too. Like, and she even says like, he wasn't even abusive or anything. So
0: like, I don't know what his, what his deal is. Like, he's so strange to understand. Thankfully for them, he had a little bit of empathy towards them as being his family and, you know, his his children. There had to be a slight sliver of, you know, I don't want to call it remorse, but just empathy not to hurt them. But yeah, I can't gauge that. I don't know. I to me somebody as violent as as he is and lashes out and always been that person that's not treated equally and then just to have everything that you're you're kinda of working for at that point in time just up and move away. Yeah, I can't believe that wouldn't have tipped him off and
3: yeah, I, I can't either. Well, yeah, I mean, it may have it may have made him go nuts, but not toward his family. That's true. You know, like he channeled that aggression outwardly toward other people. Um so yeah, I I can uh I can kind of see where that would happen.
0: Yeah, I I guess I can too. So we'll keep moving along. We have a lot of stuff to cover here. Stick with the story. Melissa Moore lived with her father until the divorce in nineteen ninety between Keith Jesperson and her mother Rose. Melissa noticed her dad was different when she was in elementary school. Their house bordered an apple orchard, and her dad killed stray cats and gophers that wandered nearby. But one day she watched horrified as he hanged her pet kittens from the family's clothesline and beat them. So
3: this is from Melissa, and this is um, sharing memories of her father in her own words. Let me tell you about the last time I saw my dad before he was sent to prison. I was 15 years old when he showed up randomly at our home in Spokane, Washington. He and my mother were divorced, and we just saw him occasionally when he fitted us in with his job as a long-distance truck driver. On this particular day in autumn 1994, he asked me and my younger brother and sister if we wanted to go out for breakfast with him. We all hopped into his big truck, which had a sleeper cab attached to it. My sister and I sat in the sleeper cab on top of the mattress, and my brother sat in the passenger seat.
0: After we set off, my brother opened the glove compartment and found a pack of cigarettes. He was really shocked because smoking was a big no-no for my dad. That had always been something he wanted to instill in us. And he said, Oh, those are for my friends, for women that I pick up. My brother pulled a face like he didn't really believe him, as if to say, Dad, are you hiding something from us? Maybe you're a closet smoker. As we were turning the corner by my high school, a big roll of duct tape rolled out of the sleeping compartment, which struck me as pretty strange too. I thought... Why does my dad have duct tape by his pillow? But I kind of brushed it off thinking, well, everything's probably in weird places because there's not a lot of space in here.
3: My brother and sister had plans that morning, so we dropped them off, and it was just my dad and I that went downtown to a diner. I love my dad, but I didn't really enjoy being around him. He made me anxious. He never molested or beat any of us. It was just a feeling that something was building, seething beneath the surface. I had once tried to articulate it to a school counselor, but it didn't come out right. I mean, a lot of kids think their dad is weird. One of the things about my dad, which made me very uncomfortable as a young woman, was that he was very explicit about his sexual relationships. For example, he sometimes went into graphic detail about what it had been like sleeping with my mother. He would leer at women in public, make lewd remarks about them, and harass them. That morning, in Denny's diner, was no different. I remember him flirting horribly with the waitress while we sat in a window booth.
0: It was during this meal that my dad said, Not everything is what it appears to be, Missy. And I said, What do you mean, Dad? I watched him wrestling with something internally. Then he said, You know, I have something to tell you and it's really important. There was a long silence before I asked him what it was. I can't tell you, sweetie. If I tell you, you will tell the police. I'm not what you think I am, Melissa. I felt my stomach drop like I was on a roller coaster and just hit the lowest part of the loop. I had to run to the bathroom. When I returned to the booth, I felt calm again, and I found, to my relief, that my dad was willing to just drop the conversation.
3: When I was 13, we were driving along the Columbia River, a beautiful wide river that separates Washington State and Oregon. We were just getting close to the Multnomah Falls area when my dad announced, I know how to kill someone and get away with it. Then he just started to tell me how he would cut off the victim's buttons so that there wouldn't be any fingerprints left, and he would wear cycling shoes that didn't leave a distinctive print in the mud. At the time, I put this down to my father's penchant for detective fiction. This is interesting. Um, <clears throat> So this is Melissa. This is his daughter. And she's going into a pretty good detail here. A couple things I want to unpack out of this is one of them is how do you feel about her telling this story? I was reading a lot of internet reaction um, in the comments on a lot of the videos and stuff I was watching and interviews where people felt that she was using her dad as a way to become famous or, you know, make money and basically using the victims through her dad, you know, for profit. Did you feel that she came off that way or did she come off as someone who was just really struggling and needed to just speak out?
0: I think you'd have to put yourself in her shoes. I think think two things to that point. One, she comes from a broken home. Her parents split up. She probably never had a whole lot growing up and not a whole lot to, you know, essentially hit the ground running when she became an adult. So if she was capitalizing on the story, I kind of don't blame her for that. I mean, what what else did her dad give her other than, you know, a lifelong, you know, of bad memories and a taboo around the fact that he had done those terrible things that he had done. But then on, then on the flip side of that, though, wouldn't you want to tell the story as kind of a way to get things off your chest if you were her in her shoes? Wouldn't you want to tell everybody, you know, the things that led up to the events that unfold later in this story? I would, but I guess the
3: question is would you do it publicly and for profit? You know, they have counselors, you can talk to people that are professionals, you can deal with this, you know, like, you don't have to go out and write a book and do a media tour and, you know, spread this all over the news. I mean, when I was looking for audio for this case, basically, every story was her. And it was her on every news platform, you know, ABC, CNN, Fox News, like she was everywhere. And, that's what I was finding. I wasn't finding like actual news stories about Jesperson. I was finding his daughter. everywhere talking about it. So I guess my personal opinion on that is similar to yours. Everyone deals with things differently. And I'll say a couple things. If you were on that video and you were commenting, you were clearly interested. So you were watching it. So whether or not she was out to make money or not, she was selling you a good and you were interested in it. So you were consuming it, you know? So people kind of are very hypocritical when they go run their mouths about it, but yet watch the video like, okay, well, if you didn't care what she had to say and you think she's just out here for profit, why are you watching? Oh, because you're fascinated by it. She has a story to tell and you want to hear it. So I don't blame her for doing that. Some people do need to do this stuff kind of publicly in a way. She wrote a book later and that's mostly why she was out on all these platforms. And I think if I have my story straight, she was writing the book at the, the, almost at the request of Dr. Phil. I think she was on one of his shows, like a, some kind of retreat thing, like grief retreat or something. And she was on there. And then, you know, they he she had emailed him originally, you know, and then he had her come on the show or whatever. And then I think she ends up writing the book and then comes back on his show and, and Oprah's show or whatever with him or however that worked out. Anyway, um, so her and Dr. Phil end up being kind of tight in a way um, where he kind of helps her, I think, deal with some of this stuff. And I think... You know, obviously now you can make the argument Dr. Phil was kind of exploiting her, you know, telling her to get her story out there, write your book, do this, and then we'll promote you, you know, and then I'll have you on my show. And, you know, it'll be a great story. You know, thinking of it from a personal gain perspective from him, you know, maybe that's kind of what got the ball rolling. But I think when Dr. Phil tells you, write the book, you write the damn book, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
3: I wouldn't hesitate, I don't think, depending on the nature of the story and how personal it was. I don't think I would hesitate.
0: Before I ever had any interaction with Dr. Phil, I'd make sure I had a good agent because I wouldn't want that son of a bitch getting more of a cut than I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge Dr. Phil fan, but you're right. I mean, somebody on a national platform comes to you and says, you need to tell your story. You need to let me promote your story. And you, you know.
3: Well, and and also he's like a, a therapist or whatever. I don't know what his official title is, to be honest with you. You know, but he's like, he's a doctor. Like he is legit doctor. Like he, you know, he does that for a living, but he just has a show where he talks about it.
0: Yeah. Right. And I completely agree with her writing a book and getting it out there. I mean, I think if she would have just went the the counseling route and just, you know, told her story to a counselor, I don't know if psychologists or grief counselors or just therapists in general are bound to any kind of client confidentiality, like a lawyer. I don't know how that works, but had she not wrote the book and told her story, what's to say one of these therapist wouldn't have wrote that book and told that story and, and capitalized on it from their side. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with her capitalizing on it. I mean, to to because she's telling her story. Like that and it, it's an interesting one, you know. Not many people grow up the child of a convicted serial killer, you know. And so it is interesting for her to tell her side of the story and and talk about these things. You know, so from that perspective, I I, I get it. Um the only thing that makes me a little iffy on this at all is just the fact that i I didn't read her book but you know like i don't know how much detail she gets into about what happens and all that stuff but you know like any of the victims from him like do they suffer at all from this like their families that's the only thing i worry about i mean she was a victim of it she was a victim of it too just by being the child of a serial killer (laughs) you're a victim no matter how you want to put that i mean good luck i mean I would never, if my dad was a serial killer and I found out later, like, that would really mess with me. I would have a really hard time with that, even though I know it's not me who did it. But then now there's this weird shadow cast over you.
0: Yeah, it's something that sticks with you for the rest of your life. It's like I said, it's that taboo that surrounds that kind of situation. You never get rid of it. And it's always the bad side that people remember, obviously.
3: Yeah, and I guess today's personal sharing day, I guess for me. So, <laughs> when I was in high school, my dad was going through a rough period and he he got a DUI and it had been, I don't know, his second or third DUI or whatever. And so he got the infamous party plates on his car, the bright yellow party plates. So like most states don't have yellow license plates. So in Ohio, if you're not familiar, If you get so many DUIs, I don't know what the rule is now. It changes all the time. But after so many in a certain period of time, you end up having to put these license plates on your car. They're bright yellow with red text on them and basically signals to everyone, hey, I cannot drink beer and not get behind the wheel of a car. (laughs) So the thing that happened out of this that affected me the most was I was driving at the time. I just got my license and so I had to drive his car with party plates on it frequently And drive a car with party plates to school. And also, my high school baseball coach was a Canton police officer. And so he was questioning me about why am I driving a car with party plates in front of my entire team? Um, You know, it was embarrassing. And that's something so stupid. You know, like I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm suffering from his actions. And that's on the very minor scale. Imagine if your if your parent was an actual serial killer, like what you would be going through, like, and that, I mean, I'd lie to you if I didn't say that messed with me to some degree or shake my confidence, like one of the most fundamental years of my youth as I'm growing up in high school. And I have to, it's funny now to talk about it, but you know, I'd be lying if I denied that it didn't bother me at some level. Of course it did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, when you're, when you're young and you're in high school, it's, it's the impression that people draw about you that shapes you too, as you, you know, finish out those years and, you know, start working towards adulthood. So absolutely it's embarrassing. And yeah, it's, yeah, that that's a crazy story. Yeah.
3: I mean, and you can draw that parallel to Melissa, obviously she's on like a magnified scale times a billion, but you know, like she was in high school when she found out about her dad, you know, like, so imagine what she went through. Like, I didn't get, the thing is like, I didn't get ragged on too hard. Cause people did, I think realize like, you know, I mean, maybe they did behind my back. I don't know. They're not to my face. I, people didn't really pick on me in school very much. Like, you know, besides the standard, like your friends are just dicking with you. But, um, you know, like I wasn't the kind of person that picked on kids and they didn't pick on me. You know, I just always was kind of there. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just showed up to school mostly and hung out with a few close people and went about my business. But, you know, I'm sure people talked when I left or, you know, parents were probably, you know, who knows? But anyway. None of it matters now. I I don't really give a shit, but, you know, at the time, like, you know, imagine like you're 16, 17 years old and that's, you know, that's what you're dealing with in school. Like, it's a little,
0: it's a little shaky. Yeah. I'd imagine it would be. And it's not the same situation, but it's a similar, it's a similar feeling. It's a similar thought in your head. You know, why people are looking at me in your case, it was because of the plates, but in her case, her dad killed a bunch of people (laughs) was a serial killer. I mean, that's just crazy. Oh, yeah. Since you're sharing the personal stories, I'll I'll try to lighten the tone here just a little bit. My dad was an over-the-road truck driver when I was a kid. That's pretty much all he did most of his life. My parents separated, I think, when I was seven years old. And then after he had left, that's what he'd done his entire life was drove truck. So some of the the personal accounts of, of her riding in the truck and being a small confined space and finding things you wouldn't expect to see in the truck, I can kind of relate to. But the only thing I ever found in my dad's truck when i go on a trip with him in the summer was Hustler Magazine. <laughs> so when I was a teenager, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I like, got to lighten the mood there a little bit and throw that out there. So, yeah. My dad was a truck driver his whole entire life. And the people that you meet out on the road at truck stops, he was always very protective he knew that there was a mixed crowd out there There there's some guys that you would see that look like they crawled out under from a rock and hadn't showered in three weeks (laughs) and they were they were just absolutely scary oh yeah and and you know he was always very protective out on the road especially when we go with him because i i saw a lot of the country actually with him when i would go in the summertime and go with him on trips i think one of the farthest trips i might have went with him was um actually went to the north end of Maine, almost to Canada. So I saw the whole East coast with him in the truck. So, I mean, I have good memories, you know, obviously bad memories for my parents separating, but yeah, he, he showed me some of the, he gave me some of that street knowledge out on the road too. So I can't complain completely.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's always neat. Um, cause my dad traveled a lot for work too. Um, and so I would ride with him every once in a while. We'd take trips and yeah, I remember that was awesome.
0: Cool. Okay, we will move on. On January 22nd, 1990, a student from Mount Hood Community College was bicycling along the old scenic path highway north of Portland when she spied a woman's corpse laying off to one side. The victim had been strangled with a rope, still tied around her neck, her bra pulled up to expose her breast, and her pants bunched around her ankles. An autopsy revealed the woman had been sexually assaulted. The victim was identified through sketches broadcast in the media, as 23-year-old Tanya Bennett, last seen alive by her parents a week before her body was found.
3: Detectives scoured the bars and truck stops where Bennett was known to spend much of her time. In one cafe, employees recalled frequent customer John Sosnovsky boasting that he had murdered a woman he met at a bar. He was laughing, a waitress told police. He thought it was a big joke. Already on probation for drunk driving and driving with a suspended license, Sosnovsky was a notorious drinker whose girlfriend, Laverne Pavlinak, had a habit of reporting him to police on phony charges every time they quarreled. Eight months before the murder, in the spring of 1989, she had telephoned the FBI and falsely accused John of robbing banks. When the G-Men cleared him, she repeated the accusation to local police.
0: Pulled in for questioning, Pavlinak accused her husband of Tanya Bennett's murder, and police obtained a search warrant for the couple's home. None of Bennett's missing personal effects were found, as searchers had hoped, but they did turn up an envelope addressed to Sanofsky with T. Bennett. Dash, a good piece, written on the back. Sosnovsky, for his part, denied killing Tanya or writing the message. Laverne Pavlinak, meanwhile, had radically changed her story. In the first version, John had merely boasted of the murder, spilling enough details that she was convinced of his guilt. In the new tale, Pavlinak admitted watching him rape and kill Tanya on the night of January 21st. It was enough for the authorities. Sosnovsky was promptly charged with murder, and Laverne was indicted for aiding him in the crime.
3: There are problems with the story, even so. Most critically, police had several witnesses who reported seeing Tanya Bennett at a bar in Gresham the night she died, 25 miles from the restaurant where Sosnovsky allegedly met her. Tanya had been playing pool, the witnesses said, with two unidentified men, neither of them John Sosnovsky. It made no difference to the jurors who tried Laverne Pavlinak in early 1991. She was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for her alleged role in the crime. Sosnovsky still maintained his innocence, But Laverne's conviction unnerved him, and soon he cut a deal with the state, pleading no contest to felony murder and kidnapping accepting a life sentence with parole eligibility after 15 years.
0: So at this point, it was case closed. Or was it? By the time Sosnowski copped his plea, investigators had already hit another snag. In January, while Laverne Pavlinak was on trial, a message was found written on a men's bathroom wall at the Greyhound Bus Depot in Livingston, Montana. It read, I killed Tanya Bennett. January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. Two people took the blame and I'm free. A few days later, in a truck, truck stop men's room in Umatilla, Oregon, a second message was found. I killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got to blame, so I can kill again. Both messages were signed with a happy face, which was just a circle with two dots for eyes and a broad crescent smile.
3: Keith Jesperson was quoted as saying, it was their fate to die by my hands like a car accident or illness. Well, I think we're going to leave you guys there for the end of part one, and we'll pick up part two next week. Craig, what are your final thoughts on what we've covered so far?
0: And there's a lot to, to unpack there. We give a, kind of the life history of Jesperson there from a young child up until his adult, you know, his adulthood, his divorce. We give an account of his daughter on just a small representation of what it was like to grow up with him and some of the stuff that she found weird. And then we hit this kind of what I attribute to weirdness where somebody sitting in a bar boasting about killing somebody that they didn't really kill, they get convicted of the murder and then all of a sudden these messages start popping up that, hey, two people got blamed for something I did, Uh, you know, they got the blame and I can kill again. And like you said, we're going to leave it right there because we're going to get into all of the gruesome details next week on part two.
3: Yeah, that Laverne Pavlinak and Sysnovsky story, man, I can't say that name sound like an idiot anyway they uh that story is crazy the fact that she's trying to frame somebody for murder including herself like she still gets (laughs) gets herself caught up in there and i think she went i mean we'll probably unpack that even a little bit more next week but i think she goes as far as to buying a purse and throwing it in the trunk of his car to make it look like he took tanya's purse i mean it just these people are psychotic i mean you think jesperson's psycho like I almost think he's less psycho than the person who's willing to
0: implicate themselves in something they didn't do. Right. And is it just a case of, were they so intrigued by the media coverage that they wanted to be a part of it, even if it meant them going to prison? I, I can't see that, but they don't sound like very bright people either, just from the small little tidbit that we learned about them right there at the end.
3: Right. Well, stay tuned for next week when we cover part two and, uh, we'll unpack the rest of that. Um, if you enjoyed our show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support us financially, please head out to our website, www.killerpod.net. Click the support button at the top of the page or via the navigation menu. Or you can hit us up on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash killerpodcast.
0: Also, you can follow us on social media. We can be found at Twitter, at killerpodcast, on Instagram, at killerpodcast. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash killer podcast or just shoot us an email killer podcast at gmail.com and not to mention I finally got caught up on our YouTube channel and if you want to catch a little small snippet of what we look like when we're recording in the morning on the intro to all of our cases check us out on our YouTube channel
3: yeah and you can find pictures of us on our Instagram page as well um, I also wanted to add I set up a group on Facebook so we have our page you can go to but there's also a group that you can, uh, we can have chats and discussions. I put up a little poll question. Uh, I might even throw this up on Instagram, but I put up a poll and I was asking which serial killer did you find to be the most infamous? So go check that out. See the four I gave you to choose from and see which one you'd you'd pick. Uh, I know what mine is, but uh, I'll save that for next time. So with that, we are signing off. Catch you for part two. Stay safe.